Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Today is a very focused episode around one word. That word is unsafety. Or a way of being, a state of emotional ways of being called not feeling safe. Feeling threatened. And if we go to um, dictionary definitions then it is a state of being unsafe, exposure to danger, insecurity risk. So insecurity being not feeling secure. Why is that word important? Why do you think I would make an episode around this word unsafety? Good question. Well, that word has been at the center It has been a nucleus, if you will, of this movement. I recently revisited one of our many whiteboard diagrams that we had to take photos off so we could, you know, wipe it off and draw more of them. And it was a diagram that sort of, you know, was an attempt at putting all the possible causes of ADHD on a diagram, and then seeing what all of them might have in common. And the one thing, the one word that came to me, whether it was channeling, whether it was me thinking of it, I don't know. I do feel it was somewhat of a divine intervention. When I was looking for, you know, the solution, the answer to my self-imposed exploration of like, what do these things all have in common? And I just couldn't get there. And at some point, the word unsafe came to me. And I wanted to call this episode unsafety. Because after seven years of research, talking to some of the world's leading experts in the fields of addiction, ADHD, trauma, biology, medicine, academia, and so on. I personally have come to my, call it seven days in, sorry, seven years in conclusion. And I, I do feel there's a lot of weight to this. And I'll explain why. So, Unsafety, unsafe, right? The state of being unsafe. So it's a being. And a being is a, a, a feeling and an emotional flood in you, if you will. And that's a response to exposure to danger, risk, and security, as the definitions state, right? 
So let's go way back. Let's talk about ADHD. First of all, if you're just joining and this is the first episode you're hearing, you might be like, what is he talking about and what is this all about? Well, in a nutshell, the ADHD is over movement has always been about asking more questions than most of us do when our children get diagnosed with ADHD. Asking more questions, digging deeper, doing more research, questioning mainstream narratives. Not for the sake of questioning mainstream narratives because we want to question mainstream narratives because we're told that mainstream is not fully truthful. I'd have to agree with that, but that is not why. Questioning the sort of given norms is vital for humanity to continue evolving because it has been only when we've questioned what hasn't been working and then went to work on changing it, transforming it, has there ever been real change. So questioning anything that we're told is just what it is and it's just the truth and take it for what it is and that's what everyone says and if you Google it, you'll see and that's what the news say. You know, if we don't question those given norms or those given facts that we're told are the end all, we cannot evolve. And this has been proven to be so true in this area, this topic of ADHD. Because not only has ADHD changed its name over the years, not only have there been times and places where ADHD didn't exist and now it does, not only, uh, you know, did, did certain, um, call it mainstream truths, you know, not only did they get exposed as being untrue or incomplete or one-sided, it's happened But in order for you to find out that it's happened, you would have to do more research. You would have to go beyond mainstream media or beyond the first two pages of the Google search results. Because those kind of discoveries, those kind of challenges to, to, you know, the norm or the truth that mainstream hands us down, those are not broadcast loudly in mainstream media right? That would be like shooting oneself in, the, in, the, in your own foot, right? So going on a tangent here, but my point being, we have to question the things we're told around ADHD. Because even experts, like I'm talking top of the line, ADHD experts don't know really What's going on? You may say like, well, what are you talking about? Of course they do. There's lots of studies and there's this and it's, you know, it's, um, uh, uh, you know, genetic. It's, it's a disorder. It's a, a brain dysfunction. Whatever, whatever we're told, right? We have to question it. I'm going to read you a quote. This is from our diagnosis from the ADHD Diagnosis Survival Guide, which, by the way, you can download for free on our website. ADHDsover.com. And there's a page in there where we said, according to the experts, and this is according to the American Psychiatric Association, ADHD is one of the most common mental disorders affecting 8.4% of American children. Emphasis on mental disorders. The CDC 
says ADHD is one of the most common neurodevelopmental disorders. So change the name there, right? Then the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, says ADHD is a neurobehavioral disorder that affects 3 to 5% of all um, American children. So just in those three very prominent, powerful institutions, American Psychiatric Association, the CDC, and the NIH, they use one uses mental disorders, the other one uses neurodevelopmental, and one uses neurobehavioral. So as you can see, even the top of the line United States institutions or governmental uh, uh, you know, institutions that are basically hail, claiming themselves to be the experts don't even agree. That should tell you already something. And when, you know, the, when we asked the same experts what causes ADHD, the American Psychiatric Association says scientists have not yet identified the specific causes of ADHD. The CDC says the causes and risk factors for ADHD are unknown. And the NIH says finally, after years of clinical research and experience with ADHD, our knowledge about the cause or causes of ADHD remains largely speculative. So let me just remind you, not yet identified, unknown, and largely speculative by the top governmental agencies, um, organizations in the country. So if they don't know, right, then how come we are all groomed to feel and believe that there is someone out there that's telling us this is what it is? This is what causes it, and this is what it is, yet they don't know. So to me, that's a big red flag, whereas a parent, at least I could say, okay, they don't seem to know exactly. It's unknown. It's largely speculative, not yet identified, right? And they're calling it this, and they're calling it that, and someone else is calling it this. Okay, so there seems to be an, a disarray here, and let's do more research, but no. How it's presented to us in the media or through experts or doctors or psychologists is, hey, here's what it is. It's a disorder. It's a brain, you know, it affects the brain. Something wrong in the brain here. Got to take medication. And if not, your child won't turn out. So do this and this and this and you'll be fine. Well, if I ever had an expert tell me that, it's kind of like going to a, a car mechanic who says, I don't know your car. I call it a Toyota, but this garage calls it a Honda. They think it's a Mercedes. And that thing you came here to fix, that defect, we're not really sure what it is. Never seen it like this. It's kind of unknown. We're speculating. But then the same mechanic would come back out and say, okay, so here's what you need to do. Pour this much oil in here, do this, buy this little pill from us and put it in the gas tank and da da da, and it's all good. I would be like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold up. Uh. You just told me you don't really know what this car is, what to call it, and you don't really know the cause. It's speculative that's causing this defect, but you're telling me to do A, B, C, D, and it'll be fine. I'm sorry, but that don't fly. Do you see what I mean here? 
I know it's kind of a silly example, but that's how the system out there acts. So I wanted to make an episode illustrating what I've come to believe after interviewing all these experts and after seeing our own son move through, you know, from seven to 14 through that phase of his life. And just to share what I've learned so that you can think about it, you can do your research, you can kind of see if it resonates. I always say this podcast is not for people who come here and say, well, convince me. I don't, I don't believe in what you're saying, but convince me. Or, you know, I'm sold in the mainstream media. I already take, my kid's taking medication and I believe it's a disorder and that's it, right? That's fine. No judgment on the choice, but that's not who the podcast is for. This is for people who are willing to dig deeper, who are willing to kind of feel it as well as read it. Because trust me, the stuff that I talk about and the stuff that our experts talk about on this podcast is backed up by scientific studies, many of them. And this is not made up stuff. Now, I do have often rants where I talk about things that I think or feel or, you know, but it's always clear I'm not an expert. I'm not a psychiatrist or a medical expert. Yet I am committed to having our listeners really, really let this information resonate because I'm a big believer that when we let stuff resonate, when we vibrate at the same frequency as an information or when the information that we're hearing or reading vibrates with us in the same frequency, there's a gut feeling, there's an intuitive sense that says, ooh, I believe this or ooh, I like this. Unfortunately, in our society, we don't really spend time teaching our children what intuition is and how to um, hone it, right? how to actually calibrate it, how to use it in life. It's a huge tool. It's probably the internal spiritual GPS that we have, and yet it's, it's barely talked about. I don't even think their schools talk about it. You know, they may say, well, what do you think? Or how do you feel about this, right? But I think there should be, and please, if there are, like email us and tell us where, but I'd love to hear from of a school who has a class in intuition or a class in how to navigate life by checking in with yourself and seeing if it's right for you, right? This intuitive sense. Anyway, don't want to get sidetracked with this, <clears throat> but that is who our podcast is for. People who are intuitively guided here, friends who tell friends, listen to this and see what you think, feel what you think, right? And so when we talk about this this topic of unsafety, I want you to keep an open mind. Again, I say this now often because it's almost required in our society. I'm not a medical professional. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not giving advice here for you to do something in life that I promised you will work out. You have to use your own judgment. As a matter of fact, we all should. And sometimes that judgment will be quote unquote wrong or lead us to some kind of failure, but those are there to learn from. So, you know, as humans, we need to make mistakes in order to learn, right? There's that, my famous, famous poster I love. It's, um, um, it's basically like fail, try, fail, try, fail, try, and in the end it's fail, triumph, because that's how we learn. So you have to make your own choices. You have to be judging your own 
parenting skills or your human skills in order to do something or not. I just talk about these possibilities. And this one is around the word unsafety, feeling unsafe. And the reason why I think we arrived there with this word is that we were brainstorming around all the potential causes for ADHD that are that are known, right? It goes anywhere from heavy metals in the brain uh, to children, uh, um, you know, having issues during birth. Uh, there are the the more obvious one that people, you know, believe is true is this the genetic, it's genetics, right? Then there's um, obviously the um, this, this idea that, uh, um, how should I say it? Uh, basically what I'm trying to say here, there's like environmental influences, like trauma is a big one that I definitely, uh, have come to believe is one of the bigger ones. And so there's all these, these influences, right? These potential causes that we want to point a finger at. And by the way, I'm, I'm here to say as a, as a disclaimer that yes, I will get to this uh, towards the end of the episode. I will get to a point at one specific grouping of um, causes that I believe is the main cause. We'll get there. But I just want to say that there isn't really one thing, one isolated thing that I believe is the cause for ADHD. So let's get started. So take us back, Roman. Okay, take us back to the birth of a new baby, right? So we have a pregnant mother giving birth uh, at a hospital or at home or wherever the setting is that you can relate to. And this new, brand new, slimy, brand new, pure, I I don't want to say pure because for some people that might be religious or whatever have some meaning so let's just say brand new little baby pops out and has arrived on planet earth right so now imagine how fragile really feel into the fragility of this newborn the fragileness of how fragile the skin is how fragile the little eyes the, the little fingers right Everything is tiny and brand new. Excuse me. Brand new, right? It's been inside of liquid for almost nine months, right? It's been inside this liquid and it's now coming out into this new space called Earth. I mean, the mother's been already in Earth, on Earth, but the baby itself really has only known, you know, and I don't mean consciously known, but some of it, yes, of course it's conscious, but you know, it's grown from inside of a body. So it's never been inside of earth. It's, it's been on planet earth through the mother, but basically it's in a new space. So it's in a new space, the hospital, right? Everything is so fragile. Now imagine every single sensual thing. And when I say sensual, I mean of the senses, Every touch, every noise, every bright light. And I know the eyes are, there's a different developmental phase, but 
Still, there's light and dark that we can see even when our eyes are closed, right? So imagine all the senses, taste all the senses, even the sixth one, right? We're human beings, we're spiritual beings. All the senses are experiencing suddenly a huge amount of foreign and new events, such as noise, light, you know, and so forth. And that is so overwhelming. I, I trust that you can feel it right now. If you put yourself in this being and you're arriving on this planet in a new space and you've been in just water, liquid inside of the mother and you come out and there's an attack on your system. And look, all those, all those events all the noises and the touching and this and the doctors and the bright lights and, and so forth, right? And then you getting injected with stuff and some kids have circumcision later. I mean, there's just all these things are coming at, at, at the baby. And that's a lot, a lot of disruption. That's a lot for a brand new nervous system to regulate and this being only has one way to regulate, which is by being close to the mother, the parents. That is co-regulation. That's why it's important to have newborns not be taken away from their parents for unnecessary things. And don't get me started on all the unnecessary things that our medical system requires or, you know, how they operate. The more that baby gets pulled away from the mother, from the parents, the more it has to, you know, it's, it's not even it has to try to regulate, it can't regulate itself, but the more it, the, the attacks of, uh, you know, the attacks on the senses continues. And for some babies, for some children, that could be enough to put the nervous system into a defense mode and I got this from uh, Dr. Stephen Porges, the inventor of the polyvagal theory, when I interviewed him. Um, we talked about that, that the nervous system goes into almost a stuckness. It goes into a defense mode. And unless we co-regulate with the baby, unless we, you know, you could say we bring it back to a calm state, the more that happens where we cannot bring a being back to its calm, uh, normal state, normal for the nervous system, the more that nervous system gets stuck in defense mode. And when we're in defense mode, what do we need to do? We need to take in more information so that we can feel what? Safe. It's kind of like this metaphor I use, and I've heard this before because I've worked with countless veterans during my time as a producer for their public service announcements for the VA, that when veterans come back from war, and you've seen this in movies and you've heard me talk about it or have heard other people talk about it, when a veteran goes, say, to a bar one night, right, or a restaurant, when they walk in and they sit at a table, they already know where people can come in and out, where the the, the emergency exits are, 
when they're sitting at a restaurant, they hear all the noises of all the people. They can they hear more voices than we can. They constantly look around. If there's a loud noise, they make sure that they can tell it's not a gunshot or it's not somebody getting upset or there's not a fight starting. There's so much information that they take in because that's pretty much their autopilot. Their human operating system got trained or I should say activated and evolved during war because during war your goal is to survive right to be safe it's almost like even if you're like a total freaking Rambo and you're like I'm gonna go kick some ass shoot some people if I die I'm fine trust me you're human there still will will be moments when you want to feel safe you need to feel safe or you don't want to die right so I'm talking about that that basic human need for survival, for staying alive. So when you're at war, your system, your operating system gets trained to survive by taking in as much information as you can. Why? Well, I mean, look at any master or any, you know, anybody who masters a skill in any area of life, the more information they have, right? Kind of like a ski racer. I grew up in Switzerland, so ski races were on, you know, every weekend. But, you know, they go through the run of, of, of their race mentally before the game. Many times they take in all the information. They take in the wind, uh, where the wind's coming from. They take in, you know, what the condition of the snow is, um, speed and where the flags are, all that stuff. The more information they can take in, the better they will do. And it's similar with our human operating system. The more information we take in, right, the more we can feel safe because we know, okay, I see what's going on in my surroundings and I don't feel threatened. So I can relax a little, right? That is the same thing that I believe based on all, all the interviews with experts I've had, all the books I've read and articles, and I believe that what ADHD is, is a coping mechanism. I even am going as far as calling it an addiction. And I know that's harsh, and a lot of you will be like, what are you talking about? I'll get there. It's a coping mechanism to feel safe. And when we feel unsafe or uncomfortable in the moment, distractions that are exciting, shiny things are a way to get out of this current moment, to be somewhere else. So when the moment is uncomfortable or unsafe, then we turn to our coping mechanism. In this case, to me, it's the behaviors around ADHD. And Look, I'm simplifying it for to make a point here. And let me explain a little further. So go back to the baby, right? So the baby starts to grow up. Now, there's a multitude of things that can happen. We've done research on jaundice, for example. This is out of, I believe, Taiwan. It's been a while. Don't quote me on this. But there was a study that kids that had jaundice, babies that had jaundice, were more likely to get ADHD. Now, at first, I thought it was a physiological medical thing, right, to do with the blood and the body. Turns out it's actually more about um, 
taking kids away from their parents for two to three days, which happened in our case, and putting them under the UV lights, right? Getting the Billy Rubin to go, I believe, up or down, I forget. Down, I think. Billy Rubin blood count. Um, so for those two, three days, again, the child is taken away from the parents. In our case, we weren't even allowed to stay there overnight. It's probably different nowadays, but this 14 years ago. We were told we needed to go home. So we did, but the doctor, they were experts, went home. In hindsight, having an almost newborn taken away for three days, and they put on these little eye goggles and they strap them down under the lights and you're in a foreign environment with all these people that you don't know, that you don't, your nervous system can't regulate with because they're not your parents. So that has more to do with with children then most likely to have ADHD when we're talking about jaundice. That's just one example. Another one is circumcision. There's a lot of research that that actually causes, you know, for a lot of kids, not all of them, again, this is not a one-size-fits-all scenario in, in any case, that for a lot of kids, that's a traumatic event on the body. That's a trauma they actually feel, even though there's, there's numbing and medication and stuff. There's evidence that that can also be a traumatic event, like strong enough for some children to then have their nervous system stuck in defense mode, they're not feeling safe, and now it's literally burnt into the body, as Dr. Bessel van der Kolk says, you know, the body keeps the score. So those are just two examples, right? So this, this kid's growing up, and now if there's like issues in, in the household, right, if there's alcoholism, drug abuse, if there's nasty divorces, if there's sexual abuse, and trust me, there's a lot, a lot of sexual abuse, and a lot of it is not talked about, and it's rampant still today. It's rampant, and there's physical abuse, and it's rampant, you know, and it breaks my heart, but all these things are extremely traumatic. Now, some of the ones I just mentioned, like sexual abuse, traumatic, you know, physical abuse, those are the capital T traumas, and when people hear, oh, trauma could be a cause of ADHD, they go, no, no, there was no trauma in our family. You know me, what I always say is just because there's no drama doesn't mean there's no trauma. Capital T traumas, yes. Those are usually pretty big, right? Those are like explosive in a, in a person's life. But then there are the, the lowercase t's, which could be s- smaller traumatic events that are, you know, span across 10 years, or five years or whatever. And there could be singular events that are not as big as, say, a sexual abuse. But again, it's not a one size fits all. I hear people say all the time, well, his brother was in the same house and da da da, and he didn't have it. You know, yeah, well, no two people have the same childhood, even if they grew up in the same family. I mean, let's just face it no human beings are alike. We're all different, we're all unique. So we need to stop with this one size fits all explanations that we're trying to brush off certain uh, alternative theories and say, well, that, that can't be true because, you know, well, no, it can be. We don't know what's enough for a child to be traumatized. It might not be enough for another child, but for this particular child, it was enough. So we have to understand that when a child feels unsafe, that's their experience. They feel unsafe. It doesn't matter if we think, well, why? Is, there's nothing to be unsafe. Come on, Billy, don't be unsafe. Cheer up. Like, you're fine. You know, that's invalidating their reality. 
when a child is unsafe or feels unsafe, they have this reality that they feel unsafe. And then their body, their human operating system is going to go into defense mode. That's what it's designed for so that we can feel safe again, right? This is a good moment maybe to talk about Tom Hartman's uh, farmer, uh, hunter versus farmers, where he talks about how, again, these hunters back in the day when they would go out and hunt, get food to feed their families, you know, they, they were exposed to, to threats, to danger, to, to animals eating them or to falling off a cliff or whatever the, the dangers were, right? They had to be on their toes. They had to be alert. Again, they had to take in so much information, so much information that they would feel safe, that they would survive so they could bring the food back to feed their families, right? So their operating system, and we all have the same operating system, the human operating system, their operating system you know, got, if you will, activated uh, earlier than, say, a farmer. Why? Because the moment we are threatened by something in life, our operating system, that part of the defense, you know, the defense part of the operating system gets activated. If you've never had a traumatic event as a kid and you just kind of have a smooth upbringing, go through life, at some point something will happen and you will have that part triggered and you will have your operating system, the defense part of it, you know, turned on. And then it's just a matter of how strongly turned on is it, right? How strong were, was your traumatic event? Because it reacts relatively to the strength of your traumatic event. So some people are really good at taking in a lot of information, like, you know, psychologists or filmmakers. There's a certain group of people that um, that, that part of their operating system has been activated for years, right? maybe as a young being. And usually it's because of their own traumas and their own things that happen in life, right? That they can be good storytellers or good directors or good, you know, it, it's all around details of taking information. And, um, and again, this goes, you know, this is a spectrum, right? Because you have autistic Asperger's, you have people on the spectrum that are just very intelligent, they know a lot of information because they've taken in a lot of information. They know how to analyze it quickly. They know how to spit out, you know, results. It's, it's a skill we all have, you know. We can all activate it. Some of us don't need it to be activated because we're in a different line of work and we are living our lives and we're happy. But again, going back to this child who's now grown up, who's had these traumatic events, right? And now this child has to go to school. Now comes the day when they have to walk into this building with desks and blackboards up front and you know sit down look forward to the room to the teacher to the authority figure who's basically force feeding them antiquated information in a dimly lit classroom often with fluorescent lights and you know 30 kids in a classroom I've heard even like upper 30s now 35 36 kids in the bathroom right I mean, in the bathroom, kids in the classroom, uh, you know, imagine like yourself at that young age, so full of wonder, you know, first of all, wanting to explore life. And then you're forced to sit there every day from, I don't know, when schools are in nowadays, 830 to 330, whatever you're there, then you got to go home and do homework, right? That's a lot of pressure that we're putting on our kids and the environment isn't very accommodating to the spectrum of humans that we are, right? I'm still baffled 
that we treat school like a one size fits all, where we literally, it's kind of like, it's the ones that can sit still versus the ones that can't. And that's all we, 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 we look at it black and white. Well, this person can sit still and get good grades. That one can't. What we're not doing is finding out that maybe, you know, or the question we're not asking is, how could we adjust our education system, our way of teaching or educating, such that even the ones that seem to not be able to sit still would be interested in sitting still or would sit still longer, right? And maybe we're asking them to sit still for too long. And maybe the way we're teaching this information is only auditory, but we have kids who need to see things, right? Or draw things. And yet we're just talking at them or we're just giving them books to read. And maybe there's kids that don't like to actually read, but when they read the same information through an audiobook, they love the story. They can uh, remember the details. They can write an essay about it, right? I've seen it with our own kids. So we're not actually interested in accommodating all types of learners. And that's why when people say, when they talk about ADHD and they talk about neurodiversity, you know, I like the term, but I always say yes and, so I'm going to take the but back. Yes, I like the term. And neurodiversity is not, I, I think it's not a term to describe children with ADHD or autism or Asperger's. We're all neurodiverse. Every single brain is different. We're all diverse. You know, it's the same when they call ADHD a superpower. Yes, and. Yes, it's a superpower. And we all have the same power within us. And I don't want this to be a term where we go, well, I have this bad thing, but hey, it's a superpower. Like, sure, it's a superpower. But everybody has a superpower. If we start to really uh, inquire about how each student learns and we accommodate that, and look, I know some of you are thinking, well, then that's, you know, you need more teachers and smaller classrooms and all that. Yeah, we do. You know, it's not like, well, you can't do it because, you know, then you have to go to private schools and it's more expensive, smaller classrooms, that's all good, but it's a private school, we can't afford it. Yeah, I know. But as a society, as, as a culture, we have to rally together to change the system because, you know, it, it's not, um, you know, and, and I don't want to get sidetracked here, but I was talking to someone the other day and, and I said to them, you know, isn't it interesting that most, most of the shootings we talk about are school shootings and it seems that there's a lot of schools shootings, you know, happening and, you know, do we ever really wonder why they happen at the schools you know, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's a clear sign that that environment is not fostering true human expansion or that environment is not catering to kids actually learning to live a good life. That, that institution, that current system really is just created to force feed these little humans with information so they can get the grades and then they can go to the next school and the next school and so forth, right? It's not about actually learning and educating. It's literally about memorizing information. That's what it is. And yes, there's critical thinking and yes, there's other things. But if you really think about grades, uh, you know, to me, I, I always say, you know, if, if somebody, 
uh, scores highly in all the tests. To me, that doesn't mean they're smart. They're just good at memorizing. Now, if you want to call memorizing smart, that's fine. But, you know, it's not a true sign of intelligence, like how we measure that. To me, it's a true sign of how, you know, willing and, and operable this person was in memorizing stuff, stuff that, you know, they're just force fed. But anyway, that's enough about the school system. But so now you have this child in school, can't sit still, distracted because the nervous system is in defense mode from many traumatic events throughout this, this child's life. And they're more interested in what's going on outside the window. They're more interested in what's what the girl in front of them is doing with their hair. They're more interested in the colorful um, chalk that's sitting off to the right, right? Or, or they're studying the teacher's outfit. They're just not quite present. And now from the outside, you know, a teacher or a principal or a parent may say that child doesn't pay attention. They must have ADHD. That's usually how quick it goes. And I don't mean by one instance, but if a teacher observes that over time, they will go to whoever they need to answer to, principal, uh, then eventually to parents and say, look, I've noticed that your child doesn't sit still, doesn't pay attention. When I ask him something later, he doesn't remember. We think your child has ADHD. That's where it all starts. And here's the kicker. Talking about this, you know, unsafety, Like, rarely when psychologists and psychiatrists do intake, rarely do they talk about all the traumatic things that could have happened in the family. Talking about the, the, you know, the parents' lives, the the marriage, the, the household, what might be, you know, why might the child not feel, um, you know, why, why, Again, why does the child not feel safe? Of course, they're not going to ask that because this is just sort of my theory, if you will. But really, if we started, you know, investigating and asking the real questions and really, instead of just labeling them and writing them off, if we really cared to find out what might be happening in this child's life, you know, in the big picture, then we might suddenly realize, oh, maybe this school isn't the right school for the child, or maybe there's just a lot going on, maybe, you know, or this child needs to be homeschooled, or maybe we can help the child if the school does have support services, right? Maybe they can help the child. And I know there's um, there's plans at school, there's the individual plans and so forth that, you know, they support kids, and I think some of that helps, but it's still under the guise of these are the outcasts, the ADHD kids, the unruly ones, and so forth. I think all of that needs to be ultimately transformed. But my point is, moving forward, I just want to say that when a human being at some point gets uh, you know, diagnosed or labeled with a disorder, I think it's better to work backwards and find out what's going on. Same with depression. You know, I often say, hear people say, I have depression and I'm always curious. I'm like, how come? They go, what do you mean? I have depression because I have depression. I'm, I'm depressed. It's like, yeah, but what are you de- depressed about? And, you know, I, I had, had this conversation. It's a very controversial conversation, but I, I don't care. I like controversial conversations because they make me think. I don't have to act upon anything 
you know, drastically, or I don't have to say that this is the truth, but let's have controversial conversations. And one of those is that when I believe that um, depression is, uh, you know, as it says, it's like stuff that's pressed down. Depression, repression, suppression, right? The opposites of expression, of speaking the truth, of, you know, feeling your feelings, like expressing what's going on in life moment by moment, not holding resentment and anger down, not suppressing feelings or suppressing truths, right? All of that will lead to depression, yes. But there isn't a depression gene, there isn't a genetic depression gene that is guaranteed to make you depressed. That's also been debunked. There's no ADHD gene. There's no, um, you know, uh, um, epigenetics has proven, the field of epigenetics can prove that genes are turned on or off through the environment, through the influences of the environment. So no one's ever predetermined to have a certain disorder or disease. But that's how we hear it in the news, right? Oh, ADHD is genetic. Yes, and, meaning yes, a gene can be turned on that somebody will then have behaviors that we label as symptoms and call ADHD. And no one is ever predetermined to have any of those disorders and diseases. But it's more likely if you um, stick to this idea and say, well, my dad was an alcoholic and so I'm an alcoholic and that's why. If you stick to that, then okay, then you've just basically taken on the same environment as your father and you said, that's my reality and that's why you have now a reason and a cause for your own dysfunction or disorder or disease as alcoholism is called, but it's not predetermined. At most, it's, it's you know, you're, um, oh, I can't think today. Um, <laughs> I'll think of it. But basically, you're not getting this disorder, this disease, because it's genetic, if that makes sense. You're not. Predispose is the word. So we might be predisposed for something like that, but never predetermined. Now, that's a huge, 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 huge splitting of the atoms here, but it's very important because that then means that we have the power to work with our environment and to remove stressors and traumatizing events and people and school system and diet and heavy metals in the brain, right? All the things I talked about earlier, all the things that we had put up on a whiteboard and that we then said, you know, basically at the, at the core of it is unsafety. All those things, we have the power to transform them. That's the good news. That's the great news, right? You can change the diet. You can move to a place where there's more nature. You can find a different school. You can, you know, and I know some people are like, well, we can't afford it, can't afford it. It's like, well, start somewhere. People will help, reach out for help. There are scholarships, there are grants, there's schools that, you know, work with you. There's, there's community nannies, there's blah, 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 fill in the blank. Don't be stopped by no or I can't because I believe that we have the power to create anything we want. We just have to get rolling, start and ask for help. Ask God for help, ask people for help, ask anybody for help, right? Ask for their opinion, advice, help, whatever. My point being, all those things 
that I believe are part of the cause, the, the causality of ADHD, all those things at the core having unsafety can be transformed so we bring safety back to a child. Safety meaning co-regulation, calm, take out the stressors, one by one remove stress from the life of your children. Now, here's the kicker, parents. It has to start with you, you the parent. And this is not a you are to blame. This is a you get to be responsible. You get to say, ha, I can do something about this. I'm going to do something about it. For example, if you're an explosive reactor, right? Somebody who always explodes and yells and whatever, you got to work on that. I'm sorry, but that causes stress in a child's life. And this is not about being their friend. You stay the parent. You are the guide. You keep them safe. Isn't that the main goal? Keeping them safe? Wink, wink. Yelling at them is not going to make them feel safe. So even if you say, my job as a parent is to keep my kids safe because I know better. Great. You got to transform yourself first. Parents go first. I'm going to say it again. Transforming a child's life, a child with this so-called disorder labeled as ADHD, to raise a child and guide a child and heal a child with ADHD, the parents have to go first. We as parents, we have to take every area of our lives, we have to flip it upside down, we have to look at it and go, is there love? Is there growth? Are we adding safety to our child with this or unsafety, right? And we have to really change all those areas in life first. And the children will literally transform. We've seen it with our son. I can always tell when I've went through a big transformation or something that's shifted for me that I'm improving or expanding as a human being, as a co-parent, as a father, as a man. When I shift big things, I can see it in my children. They subconsciously or spiritually, I don't know, psychically, whatever, they pick it up and it calms them down. And I've seen our 14-year-old who was said to have ADHD for life has dissolved his impulsivity. He's still impulsive, but not more impulsive than any 14-year-old boy or human. And he's not hyperactive anymore. If you watch him operate in the world, he's not hyperactive. So already he has dissolved those two, those two symptoms, right? That he was set to have for life, that he was set to, you know, be on medication for, or it would never go away. And this is in seven years. Now, seven years ain't no joke, right? We spend seven years committed to our son's healing which brought us ultimately to our own healing. We had to look at our own marriage. I had to look at my own way of being as a man, as a father, as a husband. We had to look at our parenting, you know, which part of the parenting was hand-me-down, this is how you do it, authority, don't ask questions. Like all these things had to be transformed, you know? We're not their friend, but we also shouldn't be an authority figure that just says, you need to just do what I say because that's what it is, right? So we had to look at all of that. We had to look at diet. We, had to, we wanted to see where we lived was a very stressful environment. We now moved, you could say, to the country. And there's so much more nature and peace and calm, right? 
we changed schools. We had to go from the school we were at that was not right for our son. We had to find another school that was actually better for him, that was less stressful, less expectations on homework and grade and all this pressure, right? Because look, we're, we're, we're slapping all these things onto our child's back. We're, we're mounting all this pressure on their backs, like a heavy backpack with rocks in it. Why? Because we believe we know what's best for them, which is high academic performance, get good grades, get into a good school, you know, get a degree from a reputable school and then have a good career, make a lot of money and you're happy. Well, that's our antiquated idea of what we think they should do. But nobody asks the kids if they're actually enjoying this time, right? And look, our sons were, our youngest one still is, but our 14-year-old is now completing the sort of child-led education that he's had for the last seven years. Our younger one's still going to be in there for three, three years or so. And now Kai at 14 is moving into a traditional sort of academically strong school, which he got accepted and he tested for it. And we're so proud of him that he, he made it in. He made it into a school that technically the school that diagnosed him seven years ago said he'll never be able to go to a good high school or college unless he's medicated. Well, he's not medicated. And he got into one of the best schools in town, a really great school. You could say, yes, we had some tutors catch him up and stuff, but you know, it, it, it takes a village and, and, you know, we're working on it. So we had to look at all these areas of life, right? You have to look at screen use. You have to look at, um, you know, we tested him for heavy metals as well, which he didn't have uh, a higher um, percentage, right? So my point is all of it as parents, I, I encourage you, I'm not saying you have to do this. I encourage you to first analyze, flip, up, flip upside down all the areas of your life first with honesty. This is really the key here. We have to be really honest about what is happening in our household. And this is a really big, this is huge because children can pick up subconsciously or psychically, if you will, they can pick up when parents are suppressed or when parents are hiding secrets or when it's a, a family where, you know, you're not really uh, allowed to show your emotions or, or any of those kind of ways of being that I, I, that I call dishonest or unexpressed, suppressed, right? A any, any form of that will be picked up by your children. And that adds to unsafety, confusion, right? So that, that ain't going to help. Now you can give them a pill and send them to school and label them, yes, they will probably sit still and do their homework and, you know, but they'll be dealing with all the side effects that I hear all the time from parents. Their personalities go flat, lack of appetite, suddenly they're, they're self-medicating with marijuana because they're used to an external substance making them quote-unquote whole, right? So yes, you can do that, but that means you're just slapping a band-aid on a deeper wound. And we have to be very, very honest about the deeper wounds that we have in our families. You know, ourselves as parents, we have deep wounds coming transgenerationally down the pipeline, right? So from our parents, their parents, their parents' parents, and so forth. So we have to do the work. Like, like you know, my wife and I are in therapy. We have, we each have a therapist that we talk to. And 
there's stuff that I'm untangling or learning about my my background, my family, my upbringing that that is mind boggling that that I've been able to transform, you know, little by little. And again, this is to be transformed so that our children don't carry this in their lives and forward to their children, right? It's almost like drawing a line in the sand here that the transgenerational trauma that I have from my family ends now. There was a lot of secrecy in my family. There was a lot of suppression around sexual energy, a lot of abuse, uh, verbal abuse, a lot of... um, domineering there was women in their masculine and men in their feminine and there was just a lot of things that now looking back as a little kid I must have been so confused and so sensitive to um, or even not just sensitive towards certain things but also copying certain things right the secrecy that my father had around his identity and 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 the secrecy of that you know it's like oh okay that's what you do you, you hide stuff. You just, you don't share everything, right? That I started doing as a young man up until I turned 50 until I finally got it. And I'm like, oh my God, I've been hiding. I've been lying. I've been cheating. I've been like all that stuff had to stop. And so I'm mentioning this and I'm being very open about it is that we have to, the reason why I said honest is because we have to look at all of it and heal it from the inside out and it will affect our children. They're not an isolated part of our family. If anything, and you've heard me say this before, children are like a check engine light. They, uh, I should say it this way, uh, children with ADHD or labeled as ADHD are a gift, are the check engine light of the family that says, yo, there's some stuff that is going on here that we're not talking about and we're not healing it and we're not dealing with it. We got to deal with it so we can heal it, right? And so look at it that way. You know, if, if you're someone listening and your child has just been diagnosed with ADHD, look at it as a blessing. It is a blessing. It's changed our lives so much. We've become so much closer. We've become so much more interested in how to live a calmer life and a more fulfilled, connected life. Because of that, because we started doing research, we started talking to people, we started trying things out. The one thing we never did is, thank God for us, we never called our child the problem. We never said, oh, he's got a problem, we got to fix it with medication, and then he's got to get good grades, and then we're good, right? That would be like making the child the problem. And this is part of our ADHD diagnosis survival guide, if you haven't downloaded it, seen it, please do so at ADHDsover.com. It's a really beautiful interactive uh, a PDF uh, that we called the ADHD Diagnosis Survival Guide. And they're, they're basically the three steps, and these are not in the guide, but it's sort of, this is inside the same context, is your child is not the problem. And number two is, for parents, heal your own shit. That's number two. Number three is honor your child. Why did we create this? Well, first of all, if you can look at your child not as the problem, but as a check engine light, you're already shifting the perspective like 180 percent degrees, right? Because you're not looking at your child as a problem or as broken or as, as disordered, right? These are all, by the way, um, 
words or thoughts that children have around maybe not the disorder till they're older but I'm broken I'm different I'm wrong I'm not enough I'm stupid I'm too much right too too loud too crazy all those and I've talked to by now hundreds of people who have ADHD or had it as a child and and what they've told me is the internalization of this and it's obviously negative it's obviously uh, eroding their self-confidence and that's what labeling can do and I know people often say well that's not true labeling is good because then you know what's wrong with you and don't don't be so you know pissy at labels no I'm, I'm gonna stay pissy at labels because labels are powerful label can actually influence the being I mean there's that study of doctor I think his name is Emoto Japanese scientist who um, who labeled, uh, I believe, bottles of water with words, right? And if it was loving words, the structure under the microscope, the, the, the crystals of the water, I believe, if that's the right term, I'm not a scientist or a biologist, but the crystals were beautiful. And then when the words were harsh, like hate or fear, the crystals of the water were really like funky looking and just like not beautiful. You can, you can look it up, look it up on Google, the water experiment. And to me, that's a huge proof. And we're made of 70, what, 73% water as a human. So imagine labeling somebody with, with that, right? Internally, they're gonna think they're less than, and they're gonna, for the rest of their life, think I'm less than I was broken. I'm, I'm not enough. I'm too much this, too much that, right? So when we do that to our children, even if we think we're helping, we're not. And that's a problem. And that's why we say if we can, you know, number one is your child's not the problem. Like if we can look at it as like, oh, this child just needs some, some healing and help. So let's look over here first, over here pointing at yourself, right? Let's look at our family first. Let's look at our environment. And, and it's very simple. All we have to look at it is like, what are all the the conscious and obviously physical in the environment, but the conscious and what could be the subconscious, um, you know, uh, stressors in the environment. Subconscious could be, again, if, if there's secrets hidden in the family, uh, that's, that's something that's not obvious, but the child can feel it. The more obvious ones, the conscious ones, if there's a lot of yelling in the household or, you know, or if they're just at the wrong school and it's a horrible experience for them, those are the more sort of conscious or real events happening in the environment. But the more important ones are the ones I mentioned that you get in therapy or through workshops and do, really doing the work. Those are the things that will also shift your child's way of being. And I've seen it. I'm here to tell you, it works. We are the role models, right? Kids model after us. And so, and they're very sensitive beings. They can tell often there'll be a, something I'm going through and I'm really in my emotions and I'm doing homework with my son and suddenly he will start crying and he's sad about, and he mentions what he's sad about and it'll be almost the same thing I'm going through, just the child version, right? But I'm like, well, but how would he know? Like, how is that possible? Then this happens several times. And the answer is it's just at this level, at this subconscious level, they pick things up. I call it the psychic, more like the psychic realm, right? They pick this up. 
So imagine all the things that they're picking up that we don't think they pick up. Now add that to all the stressors they've had since coming, you know, being born onto this planet, to all the traumatic events that might be happening that we think eh, can't be enough to stress someone out, that for them it's a big deal because they're little, right? All of their systems are brand new and little and, and fragile, right? Now add all that and then add the, the stress and the craziness and the busyness of the world today with all the media and all the fear and the news and just all add all that stuff. Of course, it's getting worse. Of course, there's more ADHD. Of course, there's more depression. It makes sense. There's more anxiety in the world. Yeah, but not because we have disorders called anxiety or depression or ADHD. No. And here comes my pointing at the one thing, the culprit, if you will. I hate to use that word, but I would say first as a disclaimer, there isn't one thing that's the cause for ADHD, but we can point at one container that contains a grouping, the the groupings of all of them. That container is society, culture. To me, culture is the cause of ADHD. Culture, not just by being culture, but the way we've come to accept what we call culture today, the sort of like, that's how it is, and we're just going to continue, that to me causes the stress, the traumatization, the trauma and the stress inside of our culture causes all these, all these disorders and diseases. And um, Dr. Gabor Mate, who was a guest on our podcast, wrote a book, um, the, the, the Myth of Normal, recently, and uh, it's fascinating. And he points at the same thing. You know, he, I'm not saying he says exactly the same thing that I'm saying, but he's pointing at the underlying, you know, the culture, the society that we live in, that we've come to accept as like the truth or the reality, or that's how it is, right? All of that stresses out so many children at a young age that their nervous systems get stuck in defense mode and we then label them with ADHD. And the same with adults, right? So many adults are anxious and fearful and depressed and we go, oh, it's a disorder called depression and here's a pill for it. Look, it all makes sense. I get it. We live in a capitalistic world, right? Everybody needs to make money. Some companies want to make more money than God. Great, go for it. You're doing it. But... The point is that what we're not looking at is that it's not a disorder. We just call it that, right? I'm aware of that. Some people get bent out of shape. What do you mean it's not a disorder? It's in the DSM and it's a disorder. My friend has it. I get it. It's not a disorder. It's not a disorder. Neither is ADHD, depression, you name it. Fill in the blank. They're not disorders. Now there's things out of order. Yes, but they're not a thing like a tumor in your brain that we need to medicate so it goes away. That's not what it is. Those disorders, especially now that I'm talking about ADHD and depression and anxiety, I'll just use those three, those can be dissolved by doing internal work. By doing internal work, the role of the parents, that will translate to external um, you know, external healing transmuted or 
communicated or trans whatever to the child, right? So what I'm trying to say here is that when, when we the parents or we the adults do the internal work, the healing from the inside out, right? Gandhi said it, be the change you want to see in the world. When we do that healing from the inside out, our children will do the same healing. And disorders will dissolve. I've seen it. I've seen it with my own son. I've seen other people do it. I've seen people who are depressed and on medication get off of medication, get their shit together. Remember, number two is heal your shit. Attack it full force through therapy, through workshops, through 12-step programs, through whatever, plant medicine, through meditation, through yoga. I've seen it many times. So these are not disorders that you'll have for life. These are uh, transitionary ways of being, transitionary uh, behavioral occurrences in your life that you can transform. And especially with ADHD, I'm a big believer that if you as a parent, I'll say we as a parent, because I'm still working on it, if we as parents transform our own society, our own culture, starting with ourselves, right? Because we are part of society and part of the culture. We, the one person, right? If I'm pointing at myself, I am part of it. So if I start transforming myself, that ripple effect out to my children, to my community, to my city, my country, right? My world, that is going to change the culture and our society that we live in. And that is what I believe needs to be transformed because that to me is the one thing that can be pointed at when it comes to the cause of ADHD. That's what I wanted to say today is that we in this society, in this culture, as human beings, do not feel safe. And when we do not feel safe, our defense mechanism, the nervous system is up. And we are anxious and we are fearful and we're depressed and we want to check out. We don't want to be in the moment, right? Who would want to be in a moment that feels unsafe? Hell no, flight, right? So, I hope this rant brought some information to you, hopefully some some insights, uh, some inspiration to question things. Again, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I love to explore these topics and really, really dig in and, and question. And I've seen so many, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? So many coins drop when I've talked to experts around trauma and ADHD and lately addiction. Um, and I want to end with that. The reason why I said earlier that I think ADHD is an addiction is not to say, oh, you have ADHD, you're an addict. Nope, that's not what I'm saying. And by the way, also, if you look at the word addict, just like disorder and, you know, it's not a positive label. And here's the thing. Addicts aren't addicts because they're addicts or born an addict. No, addicts become addicts because of traumatic events in their lives. Again, there's culture, society, stress, trauma that causes these addictions. So an addict is just a person who really needs to heal, right, from the past trauma. So they're not no longer addicted to a substance or to work or food or sex or whatever. So what are addictions? Well, addictions are distractions that we can no longer control, right? It's a fair 
fair comparison. It's a distraction, a, a sort of a numbing out mechanism, but we can no longer control it. We can't stop doing it, right? That's an addiction. Well, look at ADHD. People supposedly are distracted, right? I just talked about distraction. Well, if you're distracted by other things other than staying in the present moment and being here, right? Being focused, quote unquote. If you're distracted and that helps you feel safer than when you're unsafe and when you're in the moment, then you're going to keep looking for distractions or distractions will find you and that's your coping mechanism. You check out, but eventually you cannot not check out. Hence, you can no longer control your distractions. They now run, right? So that, to me, that's why it's similar to an addiction. And again, when I say an addiction, this is not to blame someone with ADHD. This is just to state that we can heal addictions through rewiring the brain. But if we want to rewire someone's brain and they don't feel safe most of the time, we have to engage in creating environments for them where they feel safer, safer and safer and more safe and calmer and calmer. Hence why a lot of people do meditation and yoga and you know these things help because the more we can calm down the nervous system, the more that person will feel safe. And then there's no need to be distracted and, and that brain will rewire itself eventually so that less distractions are needed to, to, to numb out, right, to cope. Therefore, we're going to break that addiction. So anyway, just wanted to leave, leave with that, that I think as human beings, we all want to feel safe. And when we are unsafe, it does not feel good. And we want to run. We want to not be here. We want to hide. We want to evaporate, whatever, right? It's that flight. And I'm here to say that together, we can literally heal the planet if we start healing ourselves first not others, ourselves first. Our children will follow. We have to go first as the parents. We have to look at this as an opportunity, as a gift that we've been given, that we have a child that is like a check engine light that tells us there's some work that could be done here in this family so that we can all heal and I can be a little bit calmer and more present and focused because I will feel safe, right? If we can look at it that way, and as a parent... We want to love our children. We want to guide them. We want them to be happy. And trust me, the way to do it is to first heal ourselves. And it's a process, right? It's not going to be done one day. But if we're in that process, in that ongoing healing and transforming, our kids will heal and transform as well. That's all I wanted to say today. Thank you for listening. If you've listened this far, certainly appreciate your attention. I always say that your attention is your most valuable commodity and you've given it generously. So thank you for that. I hope you're back for more episodes. Again, if you would like to download the ADHD Diagnosis Survival Guide, just go to ADHDsover.com. You can download that for free. Guarantee you some good nuggets in there. All right, until next time, 